From Pacifica Radio, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso Cottage Grove, in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI Lancaster, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU The Voice of Maui. In Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM Columbus. In Minneapolis-St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. And coast to coast and around the globe streaming on Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, Radio Monterey, and Blanketing the Globe five days a week on Radio Sputnik. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but today you are gifted with me, Angie Coiro. All right, you can decide over the course of the hour if that is actually a gift. Wishing Brad and Desi a lovely restful day off. And in terms of what I have to offer you, the timing is pretty darn good. I host my own syndicated radio show, In Deep with Angie Coiro, and we just had a visit from Ari Rabinhoft. He is going to be of real interest to you. You and I both know that the sheer proliferation of lies in our political discourse has taken a lot of hostages. Most importantly, it has bound and gagged people's belief in just about anything they hear as political messaging. You know, both sides do it. You, Brad and Desi's listeners, and my listeners, and people that we all hang out with, we tend to be more political than most. We eat current events for breakfast. We're hungry for political knowledge even after all the times it has gone down catching in our throats and making us gag. We keep going back. Ari Robinhoft and Media Matters, in their new book, Lies Incorporated, they are talking to us, but they're also talking to that larger group of Americans who don't have the time or the inclination to learn what is really going on in the disinformation campaigns all around us. You know, they've got kids. They've got three jobs, which is kind of ironic, because that stifles their bandwidth to learn why they have to have three jobs. They have bills to pay. They've got parents to look after. Most Americans, even those with the best intentions to be informed and to vote with that information, really can't clear the decks to learn who's telling lies and why. Lies Incorporated is the perfect primer on that. It is short. It's fast. It names names. And it exposes motivations, which are not always monetary. So we brought Ari on to lay it out for our live audience, and that included political junkies and babes in the woods. They all loved it. So let's hear some of that. You have someone listed in the book who just says, that's not true. You know, you put this guy in the air and you say there are more gun deaths in America than any other. Yes, you're speaking about John Lott. John Lott. Uh, John Lott is is a really intriguing figure. He's this guy, you you probably may not have heard of him. You've definitely seen him. Anytime there's a mass shooting in America, he's like stalking CNN's green room. He's, he's in there in like two seconds, and he's on TV uh, right after. And this goes all the way back to Columbine. In the 1990s, he wrote a book called More Guns, Less Crime. And he said, if you have uh, more liberal, and by liberal, I mean in the classical liberal sense gun laws, and allow more guns in society, there will be less crime. And John Lott is a very, was a pre- prestigious econometrics professor, worked at places like the University of Chicago, worked at Wharton, credentialed up the wazoo. And 
you, but researchers started looking at his, his data, and they started saying, wait a second, your data, your data doesn't make sense. And they started picking it apart, researchers at Stanford. The National Academy of Science assembled a panel of 16 scientists to review his, his data. The National Academy, 15 of them came back and says this, this has no basis in fact. That was the conclusion of the National Academy of Sciences. Um, John Lott has other interesting twists in his life. At one point, uh, during this academic discussion in the early 2000s, this is actually one of my favorite stories, uh, a lot of this was taking place online on bulletin boards and other places and on websites, and somebody started commenting. This woman, Mary Roche, started defending John Lott, saying, he was my professor at Wharton, he was amazing, he was the best. I, I read his, I, his book, she wrote a review on Amazon that said his book will save your life. Mary Roche was John Lott. Uh, it, was just, it was just a sock <laughs> puppet for him. And he got, he got caught, actually, by a libertarian journalist who was upset about some of the things that he was doing, and he acknowledged it. And there have been numerous incidents where this guy has been caught either using data that others have, you know, over and over and over again said, that data is not right. Or B, there's another example where he, did a, he does a survey, and he says, my survey shows that if you are attacked and you brandish a gun, nine out of 10 times somebody's attacked and brandish a gun, they, they don't have to fire. So just the act of showing your firearm, the bad guy goes away, nine out of 10 times. And some academics said, hey, you know what, can we, can we look at your data? Because that's how academics act. They say, let's look at your data, let's do competing studies, let's confirm, right? Science isn't science because of one study. Science is science because studies are confirmed over and over and over again. And these academics said, let's, let's look at your this data. And he said, uh, my computer crashed. I don't have it anymore. P.S. <laughs> the dog ate my homework. Uh, uh, <laughs> and, and first, let me say this. There is evidence his computer actually did crash at the time. It is slightly ridiculous for him to suggest that a study that would have cost thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars, the cost of polling, you wouldn't have kept paper copies of anything. You wouldn't have had a, a backup. But he goes out and he says, you know what? I'm going to redo the poll. I'll redo the survey just to show you. And he redid the survey and he said, it came out exactly the same, nine out of 10, 90% of cases, you brandish a gun, you don't have to fire it. Academics said, can we see the survey? He said, yeah, here you go. So they surveyed about 1,000 people. Of those 1,000 people, seven had actually brandished a gun during the commission of a crime. And six of them, they said nothing happened. So he was basing this conclusion that 90% based on six out of seven, which I believe an elementary school student could tell you does not equal 90%. <laughs> and second, I believe any freshman statistics student could tell you that's not a that finding does not equate to significance. Uh, and, but here's the problem. Here's a guy who has a repeated history of fudging the facts, of lying. Yet, if there's a mass shooting, he is on TV spouting his lies. You refer to something during the Obama administration. This same template shows up all the time. Yeah. Paid experts produce fake research, converted into talking points, then repeated on television by paid shills, spread through social media, and when necessary, hammered into the public consciousness through paid advertising campaigns. So that's from the birth of the right message to how it gets out to all of us. Right. It's a machine. Yes, it, it, is, it is a machine. And, and look, this book started by accident, actually. This, this book came into being, I shouldn't say by accident, I should say it started very organically. It started because I'd written a book on Fox News called The Fox Effect. 
And that meant I spent way too much time watching Fox News, which is an unhealthy activity. And I'm actually being serious about that. I, I used to say that jokingly, but a filmmaker named Jen Sanko, who I'm actually doing some events with uh, next week and, and following, uh, she made a film about her father's kind of descent into madness from watching conservative media called The Brainwashing of My Dad. It's, it's at, like, I actually heavily recommend this film. It's on iTunes and elsewhere. So when I say it's hazardous for your health, watch this film and you'll be like, oh, yeah, this... This actually is hazardous for your health. So I wrote this book on Fox, and you realize when you watch enough Fox News that the part of the business model of Fox, part of the actual brilliance, and I say that fully like thinking it's brilliant, of Roger Ailes, is you know, television news journalism is really expensive to produce because you have to go out and you have to find information, you have to create information, you have to send reports, you have to do all this reporting. Fox is interesting because part of their model is like, we don't do that a lot. What we do is just stick two people in the studio and they yell at each other for a while. And that's, it's actually a brilliant profit model, right? It's much cheaper to stick two people in a studio. You gotta send them a car, you gotta set up a mic, whatever, but you basically have two people yell at each other. So I started saying, where did these lies come from? Who lies? You know, we often talk about zombie lies. So in the zombie apocalypse, there's gonna be a patient zero. I started saying, who's the patient zero of these lies? And I started tracing them back. And over and over and over again, I found that there was a group of individuals who, for profit, both financial and ideological, were at the center of creating lie after lie after lie you hear in the media. And, and I'm very cautious in the book about what I define as a lie. A lie has to be something that is provably false. It can't just be, a, it's not a disagree. It's not that they're conservative and they're wrong. It's something that's provably false. And over and over and over again, I found the same pattern of a group of people who invent a lie, who profit from it uh, commercially and ideologically. And actually those two things are intertwined. And, you know, following this pattern of disseminating false information. Ari Rabenhoff is my guest here. And the book that has come out is Lies Incorporated, the world of post-truth politics. If you're just tuning into this show and you'd like to hear the whole thing, you can find all of it online at indeepradio.com. Let's talk about cognitive bias. And, okay. and I want to address the people who are listening who might hear what you're saying about Fox and say, as we established, you're liberal, I'm liberal, progressive. But they can say, look, it's cognitive bias. You listen to Fox. You think you have the statistics in your favor that this is true. You think you can look up facts that say this is true. But what you're discussing is this mirrored world where everyone has a handle on their own facts. Well, that's exactly what I mean by post-truth. We've entered a world where liberals and conservatives, we don't just disagree on issues, right? We, we disagree on the actual facts. And this is, this is actually an important political development and one that is highly toxic. Because if I leave today and on the way back to San Francisco, God forbid, we get into a car accident, right? And lawsuit goes to court. The judge will say before the trial begins, here are the stipulated facts you were driving. You were driving in this car. You were driving this car and the cars hit each other. Now we'll decide who's at fault for said accident, right? But in a court, there are stipulated facts. In political debates, we have entered a world where progressives believe one thing, conservatives believe another, and the basis of facts in an argument are so separated that you can't debate. Think about the debate about climate change, right? It's not a debate to say, I think the earth is warming and somebody else says, no, it's not. And another person says, no, the earth is cooling. That's a debate about reading a the thermometer. 
that's not a policy debate. And we've left, we've left that arena, and it's, it's intentional. In the book, I directly quote one of the members of Lies Incorporated, one of the most notorious ones. His name's Richard Berman. And Richard Berman is a, is a is, I, honestly, I say this about very few people. I actually truly believe him to be a sociopath. Um, <laughs> well, in fact, if I can interject, the first thing you say is Richard Berman is a liar. Yeah. That's how you open the book. And Richard Berman, think about like an industry that you would classify as not a good group of people, tobacco, fast food, you name it. He is like the guy behind it. Sugar, he's worked for them. In the late 90s, he ran a campaign against Mothers Against Drunk Driving uh, to classify them as evil. He's run campaigns to claim that pregnant women should eat more fish because mercury is totally cool. Not, and I wish I were joking about this, but he gave a presentation to a group of oil executives and, 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 and energy executives, and it was a really telling presentation. He gets up on stage and he says, he says, here's the thing, my job is not to win. My job is to get us to a status quo because at the status quo, everything stays the same. So my job is to muddy the arguments and take us to a status quo. Because if, we're at, if we keep ourselves the same, we win. That's, what the, that's the exact model of the tobacco industry. That's the exact model of the asbestos industry. That's the exact model of all these industries that desperately were trying to hold on to financial power while, frankly, in the case of tobacco, killing people. Well, in fact, there's something in the book that I was surprised to read, and it really, it, it countered what I've always believed to be true. I yeah. always thought that this idea of countering facts for your own gain was necessarily the gain of money. It yeah, was necessarily not. about getting rich or staying rich or keeping your industry bringing in a steady income. But you say that's not necessarily well, for it. for industries it is. Uh, right. But you think about the people involved, and I, I can't credit myself with this. Uh, Naomi Oreskes, who's a brilliant Harvard professor, actually, uh, sent me in this direction. She wrote a, a brilliant book about this uh, called Merchants of Doubt, uh, which I heavily recommend the book. There's also a movie. You can watch the movie if you don't want to see, if you want to read the book. But uh, essentially, she looked at uh, the climate denial industry. And she looked at the scientists involved. And we often think, and I thought this, th they sold out for the money, right? Those scientists who were in the climate denial movement, the tobacco scientists, she looked at both of them. By the way, a lot of those scientists are the same scientists, same guys, actually. And she said, oh, those guys are just in it for the money. Turns out, not true. They were in it for ideological reasons. If you, if you look at what they said, what they wrote, what, you're like, what is tobacco and climate have to do with each other? Well, these scientists were cold warriors. They were people who grew up a, a lot in, in terms of science, developing uh, satellites to, and missiles and other things for the defense industry. And they really, truly believed what they were doing was saving the world from communism. That was their, that's what they thought they were doing, and they were mission-driven. And they came to believe that any regulatory encroachment was a step towards communism. And therefore, any regulatory encroachment needed to be battled back. And you see, actually, this terminology f uh, flying around the climate denial world where, and this isn't something, when progressives hear this, they're like, really? You know what a lot of uh, the climate denial world calls uh, environmentalists now? They call them watermelons. Because you're green on the outside and red on the inside. I'm not, and, and it, it comes from that. Uh, that, that you see that channel through. So you see these scientists. Now, the money's nice. Let's, let's be clear. It's not that they don't like the money. They, they like the money. Um, you see one of the early tobacco scientists. This is interesting. Uh, why did he become a tobacco? This guy was a noted 
uh, noted scientist, National Academy of Sciences, et cetera, college president. Why did he get involved in, with the tobacco industry? Well, he was, a, he was a eugenicist. And he firmly believed that all human maladies were related to genetics. And if tobacco caused cancer, then genetics didn't cause cancer, and his whole life's work was out the window. So he spent time with the tobacco industry trying to prove that lung cancer was a genetic cause. Now, obviously, we know, we know the facts of the situation. Is they, it contributes, right? There are people, George Burns can smoke till he's in his 90s and be totally fine, and other people are much more susceptible to cancer. There is a genetic factor, obviously. But he, he did it because he, at the time, he believed this was questioning his wife's, life's work. Now, did he like the money? Of course he liked the money. Did he like the ability that he had to hand out all these huge grants from the tobacco industry to other scientists? Of course he did. But it was about ideology. And it's kind of that linkage. Money plus ideology is kind of the sweet spot here. This is the broadcast. I'm Angie Coiro, holding down the host chair as we soak in our annual celebration of America. More on the people who get paid to muddle our picture of our own country coming up on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. Lights, 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 yeah. I know, I know, it is cliche to use the Thompson Twins to cue us into more about political lies, but I can dance while I talk to you. Brad and Desi are off. I'm Angie Coiro sitting in, and we're going back to learning more from Ari Robinhoft about his book, Lies Incorporated, The World of Post-Truth Politics. The book we're talking about is Lies Incorporated, The World of Post-Truth Politics. I'm Angie Coiro sitting here with Ari Robinhoft at Kepler's Books in Menlo Park. The book is written with the cooperation and help of Media Matters. Let's do case in point. Sure. Let's start with one of the many areas that you cover and talk about how the lies begin and how they trickle down and then how, when they're countered, people believe them anyway. Most of our audience has probably heard Todd Aiken saying that when a woman is raped, she's not going to get pregnant because the body has a way of shutting that down. Yeah, there's a little switch. It's magic. Right. Yeah. You may laugh, but... In the wake of that, talk about what happened. Uh, first, can we talk about how Todd Aiken said that? Because I think that's, that's one of the things that led me to write this book is in that period, in 2012 when I started this, Todd Aiken, as Angie pointed out, said this in the, on television in a local St. Louis station. It got caught, spread everywhere. And here's the thing. If you watch the video of Todd Aiken saying that, what becomes very clear is that Todd Aiken was not lying. Why? What? Wait, he was, but he was saying something completely untrue. Yes, but he wasn't lying because lying requires intent. To, to actually lie, you have to intentionally deceive somebody. Todd Akin 100% believed every word he was saying was true. 
Why did he believe every word he was saying was true? Because he had heard it from the pulpit. He had heard it from people he trusted in the, pro, in the anti-abortion community. He had heard it over and over and over again. So I, I'm like, where did this come from? How, how did the anti-abortion community start believing it? Who was patient zero? I end up at this 1973 out-of-print book that I spent way too much money on Amazon for called Abortion and Social Justice. And in a book, there is a chapter by a guy named Dr. Frederick Mecklenburg, who's an OBGYN. Right? It's a compendium of anti-abortion chapters written pre-Roe. This is the year before Roe, actually. And he writes a chapter about how there should not be a rape exemption to abortion laws. Because that was actually a big debate back then. And he says there shouldn't be because women who are raped can't get pregnant, basically. And let me, let me lay this out. And he has a footnote. And the footnote on that statement goes to a 1967 speech, 67, 68 speech at Georgetown University by this noted professor says, here's the problem. When a woman is raped, her, she can't get pregnant. And the evidence of this was a study done at Plotzi prison in Berlin, Germany during World War II, where women were taken into the gas chamber, thought they were going to die, taken out of the gas chamber, and they didn't ovulate when that happened. Now, beyond the citation of Nazi medicine, there was, there was other problems. The biggest problem was Plotzi prison in Berlin had no gas chamber. It was a, it was a camp for political prisoners. Now, there was a study done at the prison by actually a noted anatomist that they would have had access to. And the study said women under prolonged periods of stress, starvation, imprisonment do not ovulate. That is true. That became, in this kind of chain, women under intense periods of stress, of instantaneous stress and trauma don't ovulate, which is untrue. That's how it travels through. Let me say something pretty scary. Dr. Frederick Mecklenburg, the guy who wrote the chapter in that book, until recently was the head of the OBGYN department at Nova Fa Fairfax Medical Centers, which is one of the largest medical centers on the East Coast. It's like the, I think it's the largest hospital chain in Virginia. And he was head of their OBGYN department until recently. And he never, he never uh, said what I wrote in 1973 was untrue. I called the hospital. I called their press folks. They wouldn't let me talk to him. They basically wouldn't let me have this conversation. They refused to talk to me anymore. Because I was like, can't he just say what he wrote? We all cite, we make mistakes, right? Just say that's wrong, and they wouldn't talk to me. Well, maybe not necessarily in his particular case, but in a lot of cases that you document in the book, I, I actually wrote down the phrase, the art of doubling down. And these are the people who are specifically, they know they're lying. Yeah. They know that they've ginned up facts. And when they are called on it, you know, Richard Berman is a liar. And his name is Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> but that is what happens. They, they blow off the fact that facts have been brought up to the well, contrary. That's, that's the brilliance of like someone like Betsy McCoy in the book, and actually the brilliance of Donald Trump, is get called out on a lie and is like, you know what? I'm charging right through that wall. Like, I don't, like, full steam ahead. And there's a group of people who, if you, if you literally just don't acknowledge it and just charge full steam ahead, and are like, no, you're a liar. John Lott is another example. Then a certain set of people whose lie you ideologically conform to will believe it. And you say that that's not immune to education. You can be educated and still buy into in stuff fact, that makes no sense. The more you're educated, the more likely you are to believe lies. Now, what? <laughs> Sur this, uh, surveys have been done. Numerous studies have been done, one by Yale University, and there were several others. Republicans who are more highly educated are less likely to believe that climate change is real. So the more education a Republican has, the less likely they are to believe that climate change is real. Well, we may have people in the audience who think that climate change is either not real 
or not caused by human beings. So let's talk about where that got its start and why that continues to this day. ExxonMobil, in the 70s, their own scientists come to them and say, our burning of fossil fuels is causing warming of the planet. By the way, this might be good for business because we'll be able to drill in these areas where we're not able to drill right now. Uh, we'll be able to get access to under these chandras and these oil deposits that we think are there because it'll melt. Like they're literally predicting that this might be good for business in some of their internal conversations. Exxon, instead of saying, you know what, we are doing something, they go out and they fund groups like the Heartland Institute, which is one of the biggest climate denial think tanks in the, in the country. They go out and they fund them to say climate change isn't real. At the same time, their own internal scientists, as early as the 70s, reconfirmed in the 80s and throughout, are saying we're, we're causing this to happen. And you see this type of behavior over and over again. A corporation acts in their interest to the point where, you know, their own CEO is telling shareholders, no, climate change isn't, isn't real. It won't have an impact on our, on our business. There, there are many theories about Exxon facing some form of punitive penalty because that's actually, you're not actually allowed to lie to your shareholders like that. So Exxon actually, unbeknownst to a lot of people, they were throwing out funding, and I'm combining not just your book, but some really excellent research that was done by Mother Jones Magazine. Yeah. And their tendrils went into places you just wouldn't expect. I mean, radio hosts who would get on the air and say, you I mean, know, you, this the, 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 I'll give you an example. Betsy McCoy, who I, who I mentioned about death panels. The only thing nice about the tobacco industry is that all of their papers are public. Every single word they wrote about lying to the American public is you can go read. It's all online in these archives and really well built, really searchable. And I have links to all their papers to a bunch of, not all of them because there are millions of pages of documents, but a bunch of pertinent papers in the book. And you go and you read these guys talking about how to deceive the public. Now, you say affects other issues. Betsy McCoy writes that article, No Exit, in the early 90s to destroy Hillary Clinton's health care plan. There's an internal memo from Exxon, written in the early 90s. Sorry, not Exxon, Philip Morris. I, I got caught in the other industry. There's an internal memo written by Philip Morris's executive saying, uh, yeah, we helped Betsy McCoy write that article. Let's explain how we, we gave her this, this, and this piece of information. We helped her write that article. That's in the tobacco archives. Not written for public display, not written, written to be completely private. Why did the tobacco industry care about the health care bill in the 90s? Because one of the funding mechanisms of the health care bill was a tax on tobacco which they wanted to stop. By the way, also in the tobacco archives, just an interesting side note that's not in my book, Roger Ailes, who now runs Fox News, was running CNBC during the Hillary Care debate. Guess who was paying him a consulting fee while he was running CNBC? The tobacco industry. Why? It's right in there. We're paying him five grand a month. It's right in their memos. The book we're talking about is Lies Incorporated, the World of Post-Truth Politics. I'm Angie Coro, sitting here with Ari Rabenhoft at Kepler's Books in Menlo Park. The book is written with the cooperation and help of Media Matters. In fact, can you talk about just the, the relative contributions of the two of you? And yeah, it was a lot of my work. And look, I think I was employed by them as executive vice president when I started writing it. And so I was using, frankly, time that they were paying for when I started <laughs> the book. So... So that was so the beginning, the first year of the book process or year and a half of the book process was on their dime. Before the book was published, they actually paid for a, an outside fact check of the entire document by an outside fact checker who frankly spent a month making my life a living hell because it was like, you use the word the there. Please justify your use of the word the with a citation uh, for me. <laughs> 
she found no major errors, but the fact checker actually strengthened the book. Like it was a very good process by an outside fact checker and shows the benefit. Publishers don't fund that process anymore. Publishers are like, let's get these books out as cheaply as possible because let's be honest, the book industry ain't the most lucrative thing in, in the world anymore. I want to talk about the role of the media as a whole. Yeah. I was listening to some post-election commentary today, and one of the analysts said he's had it up to here with the candidates, and all the candidates did it. They all bash the media now as though the media is monolithic. They're not monolithic. I've worked in a newsroom. Most media are intent on getting the news out. They're on deadline. They're not taking edicts from on high and say, please put out a liberal bent to the news. But as you have in here, and as we've seen in, in other areas, for example, with climate change, uh, there is an edict from on high as to how things should be handled. Fox News, this was back in the 90s. Someone actually got hold of the memos that were coming down. No, no, this this was, is the memo that I cite in the book mm -hmm. was something I got a hold of uh, in when I was at Media Matters. Right, and I'm talking about two different memos. Oh, sorry. But do, no, no, it's okay. It, in the 90s, it was a big story that yeah. you know, they had intercepted emails that said, here are the stories of the day, and here's the spin we're going to put on them. Yeah. So you know, th that's the brush that all media is being painted with, but that's not true. No, I, I do. that's not. And, and uh, the memo I was talking about in the book is I, I got a hold of a, a bunch of emails sent by Fox News's Washington bureau chief, which is a news position at Fox, not an opinion position. They differentiate between the two. And there were numerous ones that I don't cite in this book but have been cited elsewhere, such as before the 2008 election, where this was great. I, we've, I got a tape of him on a cruise ship giving a lecture talking about how he went on Fox News and called Barack Obama a socialist, even though he didn't believe that was true in the days leading up to the 2000. And he literally said, I called him a socialist, even though I knew that wasn't true. But now he's proven he's a socialist. Like, you just admitted you went on TV and said things that aren't true. He wrote a memo before the two climate uh, talks ago, so that we had Paris recently, Copenhagen before, and he wrote a memo to the reporters covering it saying, if you're going to talk about climate talks, you have to bring about how, uh, talk about how Climate Gate has undone all of climate science. And he wrote this email at Fox. And those edicts come down. There, look, there is some of that um, at, at different media organizations. But a lot of that, frankly, now gets leaked and gets out eventually. There is a bias towards lazy, depending on the reporter. This isn't everyone. But there are lazy reporters who, you know, I'm going to get out quickly. That's how Richard Berman gets to spread his stuff so well, the guy I mentioned before. One of Richard Berman's tricks, this, this is a busy guy. He is executive director, president, general counsel, or some other fancy title of 23 separate organizations simultaneously. I don't know about you, but that's, that's some, quite some employment. 23, 23 senior-level positions at different organizations. So what he does is he goes on Fox News when, uh, when the Fight for 15 protests are going on at minimum wage restaurants and says, as, sent pre as I think president of the Employment Policy Institute, I can, and that's the title he uses, is president of the Employment Policy Institute, which sounds really fancy and austere, right? Uh, all it is is $2 million paid from a shell nonprofit into his consulting firm, when you look at the tax records. As president of the Employment Policy Institute, I can tell you this is, this is only going to lead to robots taking the place of these workers. Now, the problem is, the Employment Policy Institute really does, and you see this group quoted, and you see him quoted as president of it, nobody mentions that's just a front group for the fast food industry. It's not an austere, it sounds like, you know, there's, there's actually a economic policy and is a, is a progressive economic think tank. So it, it almost sounds exactly like that. And he uses, and that's, that's biased towards, I need a quote, I need a quote. Oh, let me call this guy up on this website. He'll give me a quote. There's that bias out there. And look, that's problematic. There's a bias towards, there's a bias towards, you know, evenly covering he said, she said which frankly has faded slightly in the past few years, which is good, where journalists are more willing to call balls and strikes 
than they were, but there, that bias still exists. And there are a number of other kind of fallacies and coverage that you do have to watch for. We're talking about the book Lies Incorporated, the World of Post-Truth Politics. My guest is Ari Rabenhoft, and he is, among his other affiliations, a senior fellow with the People for the American Way. I'm Angie Coiro, guest hosting for Brad and Desi, coming right back on the Bradcast. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. the broadcast. I'm Angie Coiro. You may have heard about a story here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And the fact that wherever you are, you probably heard something about it is really telling. College sexual assault is sadly so very common in America that, all right, it happens every day. And you only hear about a vanishingly small percentage of those horrific events. So why did people in countries far removed from the U.S., hear about the case of Stanford swimmer Brock Turner. 20 years ago, his arguably way too light sentence would have gone pretty much unremarked, maybe even on his own campus. But here's what made a difference. We're a lot more aware of privilege these days. We know how the latter steps are laid out. Even the poorest of white male straight Americans hold advantages that women and minorities in parallel positions can only dream of. Did you hear about that study in France? It showed an advantage to women applicants who showed a little more cleavage in their professional photos. Have you seen the relative percentage of women and people of color in high-flying management in the most successful companies? Nearly as rare as diamond unicorns. Have you followed the growing death toll that feeds the Black Lives Matter movement? All of this is part of the common conversation now, and so are the many stories of jock privilege. What promising or already successful athletes get away with in terms of breaking the law and breaking the spirits of their partners, be they partners for one night or till death do they part. In short, people are more aware and more fed up than ever with white guys getting away with outpacing and even abusing people lower on the ladder. All right, do I have to say not all white men? Okay, not all white men, but I think better of you than that. Okay, so you take that awareness and you add in social media. Toss on top of that, one of the most expressive, moving testaments from a young victim, delivered in court as her victim's statement, and subsequently picked up by news anchors and actors and activists across the digital universe. And after that, the publication of some of the world's clumsiest, most cloth-eared rhetoric in letters to the judge from Turner's family and friends. He can't enjoy a steak anymore. He looks really unhappy. His life, poor fellow, has been destroyed by this, by his assault on a young woman. Now, way more people than Stanford students and local authorities paid attention to this. Brock Turner assaulted a young woman behind a dumpster after a party. He was caught in the act. Despite mandatory minimums, despite the prosecution's desire for a full six years in prison, 
despite Turner's identified lies during the legal procedure. The judge was lenient. No prison time. Six months in jail, probably three months in reality. Registration as a sex offender. No wonder so many people from so many places are howling for the judge's scalp by way of a special election to remove him from the bench. So we brought in award-winning journalist and former attorney Imani Gandhi and a public defender from the county in which Turner was tried, Sajid Khan, to kind of parse all this out. Here's an excerpt from our conversation. Our topic this hour involves sensitive and explicit material about sexual assault. It's pretty amazing. I just got handed this card and we were talking about what rape culture is and whether it truly exists. And this is worth going into in detail. I am a woman, says our audience member, who went through the same thing as Emily Doe. When I attended a party, I drank too much. Perhaps some pills were put in my drink. I lost control of my body. This men took me out of the building and raped me. I said no many times. He didn't care. I kept it quiet. It still hurts. I know that keeping it quiet was best. I wish Emily's rape would have been validated and Turner would have been sentenced and presumably sentenced properly. He did get sentenced. That opens up the question of rape culture, what it is, and whether it's provably extant, Imani. Rape culture is a real thing. There's a reason why most rapes go unreported. It's because rape victims are treated horribly by the media, by the system. Um, They are dragged through the mud. Their lives are opened up for examination. Everything from how much they were drinking to how many people they slept with before to whether or not they initially agreed to the sexual encounter and and it then turned into rape, whether it's even possible to rape a drunk person. I mean, these are questions that feminists and social justice activists have been reckoning with and trying to come up ways to explain to people, you can't touch people without asking them. You can't touch people without their consent. You certainly cannot penetrate someone without their consent. Even if they're drunk, even if you're both drunk, you can't have sex with drunk people and think that that's okay. Um, It breaks my heart to know that there are women out there who have been raped, whomever whomever wrote that question. Um, That breaks my heart because... The fact that she felt it necessary to say it was best for me to not report it. There, there are a lot of people who seem to think that rape victims are required to report their rapists because if they don't, then what if that person goes out and rapes somebody else? Well, a rape victim needs to care for herself first. They need to be concerned about their own trauma, their own mental state. And yes, it would be wonderful if every rape victim felt like they could come forward and try to stop it from happening to someone else. But then again, that person is opening themselves up to a lot of harsh treatment. And why would you want to do that? You've already gone through one of the worst things you'll ever go through in your entire life. The last thing you want to do is to have that triggered again and again and again as you go through a legal process that is ultimately not going to treat you fairly. Well, what about Saj's point that the accused has the right to confront and ask all kinds of questions of the purported victim. Absolutely. I agree. They have the right to ask certain questions. And I can't remember the case, and I'm sure that you will remember, but, you know, it used to be that you could ask questions about pri- previous sexual encounters. And yeah, no now the can. law is actually very regimented in yeah. terms of what you can and can't ask about, especially in terms of prior sexual behaviors or experiences, things like that. It's, it's very... Uh, limited. There have been protections that have been imposed to limit that type of muckraking, essentially. Right. And I think that just, I think rape culture comes into play even in the types of questions that victims are asked on the stand. It seems to me the way that victims are treated or alleged victims are treated on the stand is also very much a product of rape culture. 
I remember there was a YouTube video that was circulating several years ago of like, a, it was like a four-year-old boy and a four-year-old girl. And the four-year-old boy just really wanted to hug the four-year-old girl. And he kept hugging her and the four-year-old girl just kept pushing him away. And he kept hugging her and she kept pushing him away. And people were like, oh, that's so cute. You know, this four-year-old, they just want to hug. That's not cute. You know, that's teaching from a young age that it's okay for a four-year-old boy to continue to persist to want to hug a girl, even though she doesn't want it. And so it's sort of rejiggering one's thinking about something as simple as a hug between two preschoolers that can have severe consequences for how that child grows up and how that girl grows up, knowing that, you know, I can tell this young kid that I don't want to hug him and it doesn't matter because he's going to hug me anyway because he's a boy and he feels entitled. I want to go into, and this is based on a couple audience questions, I want to go into the use of the word rape in this case. The charge of rape against Brock Turner was thrown out. He was charged and convicted of attempt to rape. Rape, according to the FBI, is different than the rape, according to California. The victim was penetrated. Uh, There were pine needles and dirt in her mouth and in her vagina. The FBI says that rape is penetration. It doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, with a sex organ. It can be just about anything. Then there's the idea of what the vernacular is. I mean, nobody walking down the street who talks about the word rape says, excuse me, let me go look up the FBI definition of that. So can we talk about the use of the word rape in this case and whether it's appropriate, whether we're somehow obliged to follow a legal definition? And if so, how do we do that? I mean, as an attorney, there are, like you mentioned, there are legal definitions and there are nuances in the statute that differentiate different types of acts. But as a person, even though I'm an an attorney and as a public defender, I don't think it's wrong to label this as a a rape case. So, I mean, I think it's more accurate to say sexual assault. Um, But why? Well... Well, I guess I'm going back to my public defenderness and saying that he, that's what he was convicted of. He was convicted of assault with intent to commit rape and digital penetration, meaning with his with his fingers of uh, Emily Doe. In a technical sense, it wasn't your classic rape, you know, with with his um, with his penis, uh, for lack of a better term. And so, <laughs> is there a better term? I don't know if there's a better term. Um, but I mean, in the aggregate, I don't think it really matters. I think. It's an egregious act. It's a sexual assault. It's a rape. Uh, I don't know if the technicalities really matter as we discuss it in terms of the impact on the victim, in terms of the empathy we, we should be feeling for her. I don't think that the technicalities really matter for, for purposes of the larger scale discussion that we're, we're engaging in. A lot of questions from the audience on the role of alcohol here. There's ongoing dispute over how much responsibility lies with a person who knows that drinking makes you vulnerable to make the choice to go out and drink. If you look at that, you're going to hear, well, you're blaming the victim. And if you don't look at that, you're saying, if you're drunk, the reality is you're going to be more vulnerable. Not that it makes it your fault, but that you need to be aware that that's a reality. And maybe we need to be teaching our girls, don't lower your defenses that far. I don't like conversations about what it is girls should or shouldn't be doing when it comes to drinking or clothing or being out late at night. But at the same time, we live in the world that we live in. And so it's obviously a concern. I don't have children. If I did have children, I would certainly teach them. You know, you got to keep your defenses up. You've got to, even when I walk through parking lots late at night, I'm always aware of my surroundings. I mean, that's just I read a lot of Stephen King as a child. I'm always afraid that (laughs) someone's going to try and serial kill me in a parking lot. But, you know, I think it would be irresponsible to not teach your children, all children, to be aware of their surroundings. But at the same time, there's not enough focus on teaching boys not to rape. And there's not enough focus on teaching boys what rape is. 
a lot of times we seem to think of rape, as I said, as this forcible thing. You're dragging someone out of off the street into the bushes. And I'm sure they're, you know, 95% of guys aren't those kinds of rapists. But rape is also when a girl says no and you continue. That's rape. Non-consensual touching is when you touch someone and they say, don't touch me. And so I think we need to really focus on teaching those sorts of lessons to boys while at the same time making sure that we are raising our girls in a manner that makes them aware of their surroundings and makes them aware that that guy that you're friends with or that guy you're studying with is like every guy is a potential rapist. I mean, that's what that's like the fact. And it's a sad fact. But that's just sort of how I view the world. It's not it's not hysteria when you, you know, work with victims and you see what they're put through and you do surveys and you talk to men who have no idea that rape is as prevalent as it is. I remember I was at a party, like just a very close, intimate party with a couple of guys. And we started talking about this. And when asked who's been sexually assaulted, almost everyone in the room raised their hand and the guys were shocked. They couldn't believe it. And then they started talking. And then this particular group of women wasn't shy about sharing their experiences and 95% of them were acquaintance rape. It wasn't the dragging off the street into the bushes sort of deal. Mm -hmm. And so to get back to the question about alcohol, I have a real hard time when people blame their bad behavior on alcohol. I've been drunk plenty of times. I've never raped anyone. I've never called anyone a racist slur. I have this thing where when I hang out with certain white folks, they start to get a little bit too comfortable. And then <laughs> when they get drunk, they start to be a little bit too racist. <laughs> and it's kind of like... There's something in you that's already that way, if that comes out of you when you're drunk. I mean, I agree that about alcohol and not allowing it to be used as an excuse for sexual assault or rape. I mean, I, this idea that if someone drank too much, that somehow that uh, was their fault, that they ended up being the victim of a particular crime. Um, but in terms from a legal perspective, alcohol, drugs, intoxicants, they do play a role in terms of uh, defenses to particular crimes. Um, if someone is so intoxicated that they couldn't achieve the required intent for a particular crime, that's a defense. It's a defense that's built into the law. And in this case, uh, or in cases of sexual assault, if someone is so drunk that they couldn't consent, the view is from the offender's perspective. Did they subjectively know that the other person that they were involved with was so drunk that they couldn't consent? So it was actually from the view of Brock Turner. Looking through his eyes, should he have known or did he know that Emily Doe was so drunk that she wasn't capable of consenting? And so... Well, so if, that, if you don't mind, I'm going to go to the transcript. The judge said, I take him in his words subjectively. It's his version of events. The jury obviously found it not to be the sequence of events. There's less moral culpability attached to the defendant who is legally intoxicated. The prosecutor said, I don't agree with the court's description. This case is less serious because there was alcohol involved. Is there a legal standard on that? There is. So when you get that probation report that you might be reading from or the transcripts that you might be reading from, uh, there are statutory boxes, aggravators, mitigators. And one of the potential mitigators is whether the person was under the influence of a alcohol or a controlled substance. I mean, it's kind of counterintuitive, um, but it is something that a, a court could take into account. And Judge Persky did take into account in this particular set of circumstances. So it's something that he it wasn't something that he was pulling from thin air. It was it's actually in our guidelines and in the guidelines that the judge has in front of him to um, grapple with as he imposes his sentence. And But also what troubles me about this particular case, like it's not a case where you have two drunk people who stumble into a dorm room late at night and then it's just unclear as to what was said. I don't know a lot of women that want to have sex behind a dumpster. 
You know what I mean? And so that in and of itself just speaks of just sort of the more heinousness of this particular crime. And maybe that's, you know, not necessarily a legal standard, but there we are. But the judge is beholden the legal standards. Right. And I just... I, I just can't, this, less moral culpability because you're drunk. I mean, how does that even operate, really? Well, it, it is different. I mean, it, it's different in the sense of, if you think of the uh, more predatory behavior, so the sober person that's waiting outside that party, waiting for the drunk woman to stumble out okay. to then take advantage of her. You know, you think of that context. You, we, I, I would imagine that's a much more heinous set of circumstances because that person is essentially having more forethought, more malice in their mind, and they are essentially planning to engage in this type of behavior. And they're seeking out someone to victimize. Whereas you have someone like Brock Turner, uh, who's drinking himself, it, it doesn't rise to the level for me and for the law as the rise to the level of malice or kind of forethought or intentionality that other person that I just described might have. Mm. So well, let's I, go into the case of Raul Ramirez then. Raul Ramirez is older than Brock Turner. Yeah. There was a rape case where there was a negotiated sentence between the prosecutor and the defender. They took this case to Judge Aaron Persky and he approved the verdict. Now, this gentleman is going to jail for, gentlemen, this person is going to prison for three years, right. state prison. And I'm taking into mind all of those checkboxes that you mentioned. Yeah. And it looks like a conflict here because this is a man who admitted what he did, apologized immediately after, took full responsibility. A completely different scenario, no intoxication, the victim's statement wasn't you know, nearly the caliber of what we heard, and somehow the judge felt comfortable agreeing to a three-year sentence. One of the big distinctions here is that that was a negotiated agreement right. between two different parties, and he was you know, essentially signing off on it, but he's not a rubber stamp. I mean, it's his job to actually look at that and say, does this resonate with justice? So either of you, tackle that one. Yeah, so there's lots of nuts and bolts involved with that, uh, that case and that I want to shine some lights on, uh, shine, a, shine a light on. Um, so the judge only has certain abilities um, within the law to control outcomes of particular cases. And what they can't control is the charge. So the prosecutor, the Santa Clara County District Attorney's Office, they control what charges that they uh, prosecute. And so in the case of Mr. Ramirez, he was charged with a forcible digital penetration of a victim that has a mandatory minimum of three years prison, which is different than what Brock Turner was charged with and ultimately convicted of. And so, so in the sense that the judge had any control over Raul Ramirez's ultimate sentence, he couldn't do anything about the charge. He couldn't say to the DA, hey, you charged this wrong. Let's, bring, you know, let's uh, impose a different charge that has a different set of consequences. So the judge can only deal with what's in front of him. Now, in terms of, uh, so that's, that's point number one, is that this was a different charge. Um, the gentleman, Mr. Ramirez, was charged, we actually just described it, he was charged, he wasn't intoxicated, the victim wasn't intoxicated, he was charged with a forcible digital penetration of a victim. And that carries a three-year minimum that the judge cannot go below. He doesn't, he, the law does not afford him any ability to go below that, even if he wanted to. The other thing that's been pointed out in these news articles about Mr. Ramirez is that he didn't have any serious or violent felonies in his past. But I don't know about what his criminal history was. Just because you don't have serious or violent felonies in your past doesn't mean that you don't have any criminal history at all. That's another factor that a judge is, and a judge or a prosecutor is utilizing to determine what the appropriate sentence is. 
So I think we're comparing apples and oranges here when we talk about Raul Ramirez versus Brock Turner. We're talking about different charges. We're talking about different people. And we're talking about a judge that had discretion as related to Brock Turner by law and did not have that discretion afforded to him by law with Raul Ramirez. We're talking about the rape charges and eventual conviction of sexual assault of Brock Turner. He's a former Stanford athlete. It's resonated throughout the country because of so many issues wound into the story. And that brings us back to where I want to go now with my guests. And that is kind of Brock Turner as more than an individual, more than one person in one lawsuit. But something is emblematic of a lot of the problems that we have with our culture. Imani Gandhi is here, as is Sajid Khan, and you can find links to their work on our website at indeepradio.com. Brock Turner hit so many buttons with so many people. I first reacted to this case. I thought, here we have another guy, another white guy, at a moneyed and legendary institution who appears to have gotten off with, again, the victim being left without what appears to be justice. And that opens up the whole question of whether it's appropriate to put all that on him. I saw a listing online the other day of all of the cases of police officers who either injured or killed black Americans, and none of them are getting sentenced. But would it be fair to carry all of those cases into the court and say, well, this is the case where we're going to get somebody? And that deprives that defendant of his or her justice. So let's dive into that one. Yeah, so my my thought is that there have been countless cases of athletes that benefit from their standing as athletes at universities or professionally uh, when accused of sexual assault essentially get a slap on the wrist or even get an apology. Uh, Kobe Bryant, Ben Roethlisberger, Jameis Winston. I mean, there's just countless numbers of them. To me, this prosecution, this arrest of Rock Turner, this prosecution of him, the fact that he ultimately was convicted of three felonies, was removed from Stanford, is now unable to pursue his swimming dreams. To me, that is emblematic of a stand against rape culture. It's actually the, someone who didn't get a slap on the wrist, someone who was prosecuted to the full extent of the law. In the, in the aggregate, he didn't benefit from the privilege that so many other athletes tend to benefit from. I guess in my view, you just have to compare it to what, you know, the hypothetical black or brown defendant would have gotten in his stead. And I think that it's naive to think that the hypothetical brown or black defendant would have had a judge so concerned about his swimming dreams and how much his, you know, he liked to barbecue with his family. And I mean, I just I can't. In a, in a certain respect, I think you're right. It was a case of, okay, finally, a white guy got what's coming to him, to not to sound too retrib- retributive. Is that a word? Um, <laughs> but, you know, on the other hand, given what the prosecution asked for and given what he was sentenced to, I think there's a real gap there in between what he should have had coming and what he has had coming. That's a bit of my conversation with journalist Imani Gandhi and public defender Sajid Khan on the Brock Turner verdict in its national implications. And that's a wrap on the broadcast with me, your guest host, Angie Coiro. I hope I made it worth your while today to tune in. But if not, fear not, Brad and Desi will be back with their superb coverage of what matters out there in the big world of politics and life. Thanks for tuning in. And as they say on airplanes everywhere, bye-bye. <laughs>